Hello and welcome to the Aesthetic Distance Podcast. This is your host, Eliza Romero, and with me today is my friend, Kuya Andre, a Filipino-American political activist from D.C. Hi, Kuya. Hi, how are you doing, Eliza? Pretty good. Kuya Andre and I were together this past weekend in D.C. for the big Mute White Supremacy Rally, uh, which was organized by All Out D.C. along with One People's Project, Black Lives Matter, um, the Occupy Movement, Democratic Socialists of America. There was a lot of people there. Mm -hmm. One of the people I was most excited to talk to was Daryl Lamont Jenkins, who I saw walking around in the crowd. Yeah, I saw that. You want to tell folks uh, what Daryl does? Yeah. Daryl is the founder of One People's Project. He He is part of Antifa. And he has been one of the most vocal in in exposing the far right. Um, yeah, so, yeah, j- just to lay out the geography for folks. So 14th Street Northwest uh, is a street that runs north to south and separated our two parks, you know, Pershing Park uh, on the west side where we were, and then Freedom Plaza on the east side, which is the one that um, the FASH had reserved for their rally, um, for their so-called demand-free speech rally, which... Actually, one of the funniest things that I saw, I was watching some videos from their rally afterwards because I was like curious to see like what their rally was about. And, you know, obviously you had the normal like Milo Yiannopoulos antics that he's always up to. You know, he showed up in drag talking about whatever. And then but there's a really good video. If anyone can find it, I highly suggest watching it of a far right activist complaining that he was banned from Tinder for hate speech and that he went on for like a minute talking about how he can't swipe right on tinder anymore because people can't handle like what he's got to say and this is like the funniest thing where i'm like oh yeah this is a this is what we're here about is you can't go on tinder anymore okay (laughs) so basically the demand free speech rally that the far right was putting on it was to protest the deep platforming of many of their public figures Mm-hmm. Yep. What they believe is that they are being silenced and that there is a bias against them, that their First Amendment rights are being taken away from them. Which, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, uh, like, fascists will, like, depending on the ones that break character, like, they will openly admit that they don't actually care about freedom of speech um, as a whole. They really just, they use it as a tool to say what they want to say um, and get their message out there. Because if they were in power, they wouldn't be actively promoting this, you know. Didn't Richard Spencer himself say that the alt-right doesn't believe in free speech? I believe so. And then the one concrete example I remember was um, Matthew Heimbach, who was like leader of the traditional traditionalist workers party, which was a now defunct like alt-right group, um, which was like sort of a weird mix of like alt-right fascist philosophy mixed in with like a little bit of Marxism, like sort of like trying to mobilize like white working class people. There was a rally and somebody tried to ask him a question where they said, you know, do you believe in free speech rights, First Amendment rights? And he just said like on tape, when it suits our needs, yes. Because that's sort of what they do is they take advantage of the sort of liberal notion of, you know, we live in a free marketplace of ideas, sort of like the truth will prevail in the end and you should just let them speak and people will see through it. They take advantage of that liberal notion and use it to sort of spread their messages because they know that if they speak like on CNN or in a public rally, like they they fully understand that maybe 90 
80% of people listening are going to scoff at them and not take them seriously. But that's not really what they're there to do. They're there to recruit the 10 to 20% of people where, you know, the message kind of resonates. Give them a little pamphlet, say, you know, hey, we're having a meeting. You don't have to show up in public, but, you know, come come and hear more, you know, about uh, white genocide or whatever it is they're talking about today. And, you know, that's kind of how they take advantage of, you know, this idea that, you know, liberals believe, like, what, what's that Jefferson quote where he's like, I may not agree with you, but I'll defend to the death the right for you to say what you want to say kind of thing. So, Eliza, was um this past Saturday, was that the first time you've ever been to an action with uh, people who were masked up and stuff? It was. I will admit that I was on high alert because of the events that happened in Portland last week. And I thought that the Proud Boys were definitely going to be very aggressive. I thought that Antifa was going to have to really fight back. What actually ended up happening was it was very peaceful. I thought it was a very joyous affair. I thought it was a celebration of resistance, definitely on our side. It was successful in countering and drowning out what they stood for on the far right. Awesome. Antifa or anti-fascism has been around since fascism has been around. It comes from the resistance movements against Mussolini and Hitler in the 1920s and 30s. And in the U.S., the movement was born from the anti-racism movement. Since fascism is back in the news, so is Antifa. And here in the U.S., they are a movement of resistance to the Trump administration, the rise of the alt-right, and the resurgence of white nationalist groups. Now, Antifa has a bad reputation, and they're misunderstood and misrepresented constantly. The movement has been discredited as some sort of left-wing equivalent of the alt-right. First, it's been inaccurately described as like a singular organization, but it's more of an organizing strategy and an ideology than it is a group of people. And it's not just conservatives that spread misinformation, it's liberals too. But I think this really just goes to show how successful conservative voices have been at manipulating narratives to bestow false senses of equivalency. I think that supporting Antifa is a way to stand up to those on the far right who condemn Antifa, but then they turn the other cheek to extremism in their own party. So it's a way to stand up to the kinds of people who refuse to punch right, so to say. There isn't just one mass organization called Antifa. It's like thousands of different groups that come together for the same causes um, across the world. And they're about fighting fascists directly rather than through electoral means. I agree with that. I think that waiting for the goodwill of government institutions is naive. I think that the electoral mindset is, it's just about doing what's popular and appealing to the lowest common denominator. You start with popular opinion and then you work your way backwards so that you can appease the majority. Mm -hmm. But the anti-fascism movement, it aims to stomp out any kind of potential threat, whether it's popular or not. And see, I support that because the people that have the people that have suffered the most are usually the marginalized who will never have the backing of the rest of society. Yep, yeah. The way I always think about it when I'm explaining it to people is that Antifa is less a thing you are and more a thing you do. It's a type of organizing tactic that people use and like there's a spectrum of things that you can do because um, I guess the more sexy part or act, like exciting part that people want to see is like street confrontations but that's like a very small sliver of the kind of work that you end up doing. 
or what people who call themselves anti-fascists end up doing? Yeah, when people think of Antifa, they only think of like the black bloc. Yeah. You know, whenever you see these news reports of counter-protests, they'll say something like, oh, thousands of counter-protesters and about 50 members of Antifa. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah, like, yeah. well, if we're talking anti-fascist, isn't that all the organizations? Yeah, it's just the, the word itself, I guess, is just a, a boogeyman for people on the right in the center and like the center left like liberal types who uh just sort of fear it or anything like it it's interesting because history shows through the rise of different fascist regimes that liberals will side with fascists over you know anti-fascists communists anarchists they will always side with fascists every time because they have a vested interest in preserving you know capitalism current power structures things like that and a lot of times anti-fascists will challenge that and that, you know, they have a vested interest in seeing anti-fascists be defeated. And that's sort of something that we see repeated over and over. One of the reasons that Antifa is so misunderstood is because fascism itself is misunderstood. I don't think that Americans know what fascism is. I think that they equate fascism to socialism and communism without understanding what those political philosophies are either they use fascism as sort of like a shorthand for like i don't know just people being violent generally which you know is is incorrect because if you support neoliberalism you're also supporting police violence u.s imperialist violence the real violence is this imperialistic violence it's police brutality it is putting kids in cages in concentration camps the more mundane violence of someone being evicted because they're not able to go to work because they're disabled and they can't afford to live in an apartment uh, somewhere. That's a form of violence as well. That's enforced by the neoliberal world order and the capitalist system that we live under, right? So by calling yourself a liberal and sort of like washing your hands of being violent or getting involved in uh, any sort of anti-fascist organizing, you're enforcing a violent political structure. It's just that it affects different people other than yourself. Yeah, classic liberalism here in the States is it's still defending the status quo. That's the thing with, again, with, with the word fascism and how it gets used. It's just kind of like shorthand for things I don't like. People will look at anti-fascists and, and say, Antifa, anti-fascists, they're the real fascists because they're not letting people speak at some whatever rally or spread their message. Honestly, like by definition, fascism is kind of hard to pin down just because of the way that it was formed. I think one of the better definitions of it was by, there's, a, there's an Italian philosopher named uh, Umberto Eco who lived under Mussolini's regime. An essay that he wrote in 1995 was called Ur-Fascism, where he tries to make a definition of what fascism is. Part of what he says is that, you know, Nazism specifically is an ideology that's a concrete ideology. Fascism under Mussolini in Italy was a lot more like fuzzy and amorphous. Like there were themes involved in his definition of fascism, but he didn't really believe in a lot of concrete things. He just believed in a, a couple of principles, sort of like the aesthetics of fascism with like the uniforms and the marching and the big formations. And like that's sort of what Mussolini used, but there wasn't a lot of substance to what he was saying. Initially, Mussolini like, build himself as a communist and then later on he was a, a big like anti-clerical person who hated the church mm -hmm. and then later on he was like oh no i'm a big friend of the church and then the church started calling him the man of providence so he really didn't stand for anything except for just like a vague aesthetic <laughs> i guess like to really quick run through uh what umberto eco does is in his essay he lays out principles that are common to fascism 
And uh, so like number one, he says uh, fascism uses a cult of tradition, which is, uh, you know, traditional values. The whole phrase make America great again is just an appeal to tradition, right? Two, uh, a rejection of modernism. You see a lot of what what they call alt-light people, you know, people who aren't like overtly fascist, but they're kind of like skirting the edge of it. They have this scapegoat that they talk about, um, like postmodernist cultural Marxism, which really like is shorthand for multiculturalism and usually trans rights, the two big things that they really hate. Um, number three, cult of action for action's sake, which sort of plays into the idea of like mobilizing toxic masculinity. Number four, lack of self-criticism, you know, because if you took a second and criticized the fascist ideology, it kind of falls apart because there's a lot of contradictions in there, um, which is kind of opposed to what Marxists do, which is constant self-criticism for anyone that's done real organizing in a Marxist sense. Five, the fear of difference and diversity manifests today in like xenophobia, but you have to create an enemy for fascism to take hold. Right, you need a scapegoat. It can be immigrants or Jews or whatever you're going to use to mobilize the people to be mad. Number six, he says, um, appeal to social frustrations in a frustrated middle class, which you can see like happening all around us right now. When like fascists recruit people, they're looking at people who traditionally white people, but there's some people of color mixed in there talking about how like, you know, Western civilization is under attack, you know, like, like your, your institutions are being eroded away. What are you going to do about it? Uh, number seven is fear of an international plot mm-hmm. against the people, right? So they manufacture like conspiracy theories about like globalists, which is usually shorthand for Jewish people, you, you know, kind of like this whole idea of like white genocide or what they call it, the great replacement replacement theory yeah yeah this whole like you know jewish people are orchestrating uh for people of color to invade our country and like multiply so they outnumber white people you know without (laughs) without an actual analysis of how demographic change just happens over hundreds of years but you know making it into like its own conspiracy theory number eight this idea that the enemy is both strong and weak at the same time antifa is a great example because you hear like a lot of like chest beating from right wingers talking about you know antifa they're all a bunch of like soy boy cucks who eat too much vegan food and you know they're weak and whatever <laughs> but then at the same time they're also violent thugs that need to be stopped right they're, they're terrorists exactly so they're both at the same time because it makes you both fearful of them and also not afraid of them, depending on the context. So it's a very useful like way to conceive of your enemies under fascism. Number nine is actually like very beautifully put. He says, you don't struggle to live, but you live to struggle. You know, expansionist wars, things like that. Like there's no number 10, elitism and contempt for the weak. Under fascist dictatorship, they look at people who are disabled, who like don't fit a traditional concept of what a cisgender heterosexual man should be. And they have extreme contempt for it. They're mobilizing like this sort of like angsty, directionless kind of person and mobilize them to be foot soldiers uh, against uh, the forces of multiculturalism, whatever it is they hate for the day. Uh, Yeah, so number 11, everyone is educated to be a hero or a cult of death. And this is kind of like... My example that I think of is like the Spartans in the, the movie 300. It's like they're, they're sort of like death junkies, right? They all want to die a heroic death. Uh, under fascism, like one of the most glor- glorifying things you can do is to die for the sake of fascism. What was the name of all those boys in Mad Max? Oh, the war boys. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Like that sort of like, you know, witness this heroic thing that I did. This sort of like distorted version of what they think that Vikings were, where they're always like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm descended from Vikings and... 
I'm gonna meet you all in Valhalla when I die kind of thing. Yeah, and that's that's a, exact, that's a perfect example. Number 12, machismo, a disdain for women and LGBTQIA plus people. Essentially under fascism, there's this sort of idea that specifically white women will serve as like trad wives, traditional wives, you know, homemakers, things like that. And that's their only role they should have in society. There are like alt-right women like Lauren Southern who will be talking online about, you know, the Great Replacement, fascism, um, white identitarianism. She put out a video one time talking about her followers telling me like, S you can't tell me that I have to get married or settle down and blah, blah. I'm like, what, what did you expect? You're... You're, you're a fascist organizer. This is what they think of women. Like, you shouldn't be surprised that now they're mad at you for having a platform, even though they were fans of you yesterday. Like, they're going to expect you to settle down and start producing white children for the, for the cause. You know, that's what they want from you. Ooh. Number 13 is selective populism, right? So you believe in populism for a select... And that's a group of people that, you know, if you do achieve your fascist state, it's actually not that bad or dystopian for them. For certain people, it would actually be pretty okay, ground up and oppressed within that system to maintain this good life for everybody else. Um, and then number 14 is like new speak, which is, you know, sort of like a borrowed term from uh, George Orwell's 1984. Uh, they change the definitions of words and what they mean, or they make up new words to sort of like shape public opinion, shape how they speak on the news. Like, again, like one of these things I think of is uh, Donald Trump's accusation of there being like an alt left in response to an alt right, things like that. Um, or like even the whole fake news phenomenon where you can just kind of like stick your hands in your ears and say everything is fake news that I don't like. Yeah, sorry that took so long. But yeah, that's sort of Umberto Eco's 14 points for what defines a vague version of fascism that can kind of be applied to different movements. In the States, you have things like you know, you have Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, American Identity Movement. There were some people who were wearing like shirts uh, on Saturday. Um, there were people wearing shirts from like Generation Identity, which is a European identitarian movement. That yellow logo. Yeah, it's like the yellow one. It looks like like a like a triangle without the bottom piece. It's like a. It's supposed to be a lambda, in which in Greek was a symbol that the Spartans would like have on their shields when they went into battle. I saw some of those people walking up and down the street like on um, 14th. So there's like a mix of like them and also like the Proud Boys also wear like yellow and black because like that's their uniform wearing the yellow and black sort of like so all of these movements like they kind of like differ from each other. But like you can you can vaguely apply the term fascism to them because fasc fascism in itself is a very vaguely defined thing. So basically, they, they tend to be militaristic and racist. They heavily promote nationalism. There's a complete disdain for human rights. They pick out one specific group or groups as scapegoats. And then there's this obsession with, like, national security. Yeah, yeah. What about religion? In fascism, are religion and government intertwined? Yeah, I think it, it also depends on, like, which fascist movement you're sort of, like, moving in. Patriot Prayer is a perfect example. They're supposed to be... Like, they purport to be a Christian organization, right? Some of them do believe in, like, German neo-paganism, which was a feature of uh, Nazism. There was, like, a lot of occult um, symbolism and imagery. The reason that they use it is because it's part of the cult of tradition, right? It calls back to this whole idea, like, you're descended from Teutonic Knights, so, 
you know, like take up your your father's broadsword in hand and defend Western civilization and white women from the brown hordes or something, you know, that kind of thing. It's an ideology of exclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when it comes to economics, they tend to support private property rights. Yeah, and and that's another misnomer that's put out, uh, especially by right-wingers about um, the Nazi regime. And they were socialists, like Dinesh D'Souza does that in his, like, documentary like the big lie or whatever it's called don't don't watch it i I watched it don't don't be like me (laughs) but um sort sort of like this idea that because socialist is in the name of the nazi party you know because it's like national socialist german workers party right that they're inherently leftist but they're not the the issue at the time was that the biggest rivals to the early nazi party when hitler started and remember like hitler started with 45 dudes it was just him and 45 guys right and their biggest rivals were the communists, the German Communist Party, and the the street gangs that were fighting them. Right? This is these are the people who became the first um, German anti-fascist, or what they call the anti-fascistische Aktion, like anti-fascist action. And they were they were street brawling with them, and sort of as an organizing tactic, they adopted socialist rhetoric in there, talking about workers' rights, talking about the downtrodden, like helping poor German people. Um, get back on their feet. But in practice, there was nothing socialist about Nazism because they outlawed trade unions and they hunted down socialists. I mean, the the, the very, that famous poem about, you know, I, I said nothing because I wasn't one of them. The first line, I think it's one of the first lines. It's like, first they came for the socialists and I said nothing because I wasn't a socialist. Like, obviously he didn't like socialists because he they were the first enemies that he came after. From the start, they were already actively fighting them on the street when no one else was fighting them. Let's talk about Portland and Andy No. He's probably more well-known now than he was before. He's painted himself as a victim, but let's talk about who he really is and what happened last weekend. First of all, the, the cement milkshakes yeah. thing. like that was, So Portland police said it was reported, but there's no evidence of cement in the milkshakes at all. Yeah, even multiple requests that other journalists have put out for clarification from the Portland Police Bureau, they haven't said anything because it it is in their interest to make anti-fascism look bad. Right, it supports their narrative. Yeah, yeah. But let's, let's talk about, because the audience may not know who Andy No is outside of last weekend's events. He's a conservative journalist. He's definitely putting his identity as being Vietnamese and gay to the forefront, right? To just to try and gain more sympathy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those things where like, it's actually funny because he, he wrote an article one time talking about how um, college campuses are uh, manufacturing fake hate crimes, and now he's trying to claim to be a victim of a hate crime, which I think is interesting that things worked out like that. He did a piece where he went to London and talked about how the Muslim enclaves, the Muslim communities, had led to the downfall of uh, England. Yeah, yeah. He, he. It's funny because like he at one point, the very end of his uh, article, he talks about how it's like a failure of like multiculturalism where I'm like, okay, so as a queer Asian man, you're going to talk about why multiculturalism is bad, you know? Okay, fine. Um, But one of the funny thing is in his article, he talks a lot about um, like the evidence of like Sharia law in London, in Whitechapel specifically, which is a, there's a lot of Muslim folks that live in that part of London. Mm -hmm. And one of his examples is like, oh, there's a sign here. This is alcohol use restricted. And, the reason why that sign was there was because 
there were a lot of people getting in drunk bar fights along that area. It had nothing to do with the fact that it was a Muslim neighborhood. It's just that alcohol use is restricted in certain parts of England because people keep getting in fights. But then, you know, it's it fed his narrative where it's like, see, Muslims don't drink. So this is fascism right here, not letting people drink in public, even though from what I understand, people who live in Whitechapel who responded to his article said people drink in that part of Whitechapel all the time. It's like not a really heavily enforced law there. And, you know, on top of that, like we don't have open container, open container uh, allowed here in the States, in most parts of the United States. <laughs> you can't have an open can of beer in most places here so like are we living under sharia law like magically no we're not like that's not evidence of anything he had very like spurious claims in that article um but but again like it it feeds sort of the this sort of like islamophobic worldview that andy no is trying to perpetuate um that you know like muslims are a threat to western civilization um so i guess like that that makes him a quote-unquote journalist and sort of like I, I've I've seen an article where it's like, you, you know, lauded journalist Andy No was attacked. I'm like, really? Lauded? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Andy No does live in like the Portland area. And uh, sort of with all of these uh, clashes between Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, and Antifa in the Pacific Northwest, Andy No makes it a habit of like going out to these confrontations and reporting on it. And, you know, people know him now. And like, you know, Andy No sort of like, embeds himself with you know these far-right groups so that he can report and like make you know sensational stories about anti-fascist violence happening in the streets of portland um and one example there was a may day this year uh a group of like patriot prayer members i think some proud boys attacked a bar after may day called a cider riot um and you know it's a known place a known gathering place for leftists anarchists and stuff so they came in there looking for a fight and at one point uh one of the right wingers used a collapsible baton and like hit a lady in the back and shattered several of her vertebrae. And Andy No responded by doxing her and putting her personal information out on Twitter because because like last year she like unplugged a sound system that like right wingers were using for the rally. So like oh now now this guy who's like oh look this per-, like he's he's trying to leverage a lot of support being like oh I got a brain hemorrhage from Antifa punching me. And it's like, well, where was your, like, so, but your response to other people being attacked and like going to the hospital is like, here's her personal information, go harass her at home, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's being, he's pretty successful. Like he's, he's done a pretty good job of it in the past week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's this sort of like, if you search for, I search for Antifa today on YouTube and literally every video is something about Andy No jake tapper from cnn play into their hands because they seem like oh he's a journalist he's one of our own i may not agree with the kind of journalism he does but i gotta stand by my journalist brother you know kind of thing it's really frustrating that's the way the liberal media sees it and it's hard to put out a counter narrative because every time you do like all the good counter narratives i see online are just like deluged by you know right wingers shouting them down and being like no you're real fascist just be honest about what happened to him part of the reason that the liberal media can't get it right is because they are not on the ground organizing they have no idea what it's like yeah exactly it's just because especially when they're portraying anti-fascism sort of they know what's going to sell copies or you know ad space on their website or tv show it's going to be violent street confrontations and it's not going to be 
on the ground community organizing. Right, because that's not interesting to watch. Yeah, nobody wants to watch people writing up leaflets and passing out flyers. Mm -hmm, yeah. Something I've noticed when it comes to the far right, and on Saturday, I saw it a lot of like blacks for Trump. I saw a lot of uh, Asian dudes in the Proud Boys. You know, I saw a couple guys wearing MAGA hats and wearing like CNN is fake news t-shirts. The Proud Boys chairperson is en Enrique Tario who's a Latino man. Why do so many people of color sympathize with these right-wing movements like Andy No, Enrique Tarrio, um, <laughs> Tila Tequila, mm -hmm. well, I, Dinesh D'Souza? Yeah, I, I think it's like sort, sort of they don't see solidarity in the struggles of black people being hunted down by the police, trans people's lives being ended way too early. You know, the, the average lifespan of a trans black woman in the United States is about 35 years. A lot of times often that will end in a violent death. They don't see solidarity in the struggles for these people, and they'd rather, you know, enforce their either a neoliberal world order or a return to like some fictional world order that they think we lived under in the 1950s. They refuse to see that solidarity because they don't see they don't see being part of a marginalized community as the winning team. Yeah. I mean, whether or not they like it, they are part of a marginalized community. Yeah. Andy No is, he is Asian and he is gay. Part of the problem is that marginalized people, of course, they don't want to be marginalized. And instead of seeking solidarity with these communities, they instead go to the other side, the side of the oppressor. Yeah. And then also like, not to discount it, but they're making a lot of money doing it. Andy No sort of like, they started that GoFundMe page or whatever, and he made like, yeah, $150,000. That kind of person would get paid a lot generally doing journalism, right? Like, could you imagine if, like, every person of color, like Candace Owens, who works for Turning Point USA, like, how much money she's making is like, I'm a black woman, but I'm a conservative kind of thing. Or especially, like, the big gets they always like to get in Target are people who are like, oh, I was a former uh, socialist, but now I believe in conservative values. Also, I'm... I'm a, you know, whatever marginalized community I belong to. Like, these are big gets for them. And, you know, people stand to make a lot of money if they shill for them, you know. And I think that sort of plays into also, like, the unique way that we conceive of whiteness in the United States, which is different from how they conceive of it in Europe. So, like, you see, like, a lot of fascist organizations in Europe are split along, like, ethnic lines, but very specific ethnic lines, right? For example, La Liga in Italy is a far right-wing party in Italy, right? But originally they were called um, the, the Northern League. They were for the rights of Northern Italians only. The lighter skin, lighter haired, lighter eyed ones. Like true heirs to the Roman Empire. Yeah, sort of like people who looked more Germanic. And then people from Southern Italy, the more Mediterranean ones, like these people had like impure blood, you know, they have African blood in them. They're not real Italians kind of thing. But that doesn't exist so much in the United States because you have a lot of people from different uh backgrounds european backgrounds that are all like vaguely considered white right and they can pass as white um and i think what a lot of these like fascists of color sort of like miss out on is like yeah even if you're you know asian people can be seen as like the good minority quote unquote by white people but you'll never be white you know you'll, you'll get close you'll probably get closer than most black folks will yeah like like that's the thing i see too that like you know asian people like in, in, in the United States, it's different in other countries, but Asian people in the United States benefit from proximity to whiteness in ways that other people of color don't. And I think that happens a lot with 
you know, Asian people who seek to, you know, live within the system and they're okay with being yeah, there, every white there person's are a lot like one of, minority um, friend. You know what I mean? I do see a lot of that. The kinds that instead of toppling racism, what they want to do is figure out how they can live within it and succeed, but never challenge it. Mm -hmm. So we keep hearing about the Proud Boys these days. Yeah, yeah. I see their name in the news more and more. After Charlottesville, most of the alt-right took a big hit, but the Proud Boys continued to grow and they built up their national base with chapters across the U.S. And they've got tons of supporters in the Republican Party. And they also have their own magazine. They were probably mm -hmm. the major group that showed up on Saturday in D.C. Part of the reason I was nervous about this rally was not just because of the events in Portland last week, but because Charlottesville was also advertised as a free speech rally. Right, Can you yeah. talk a little bit about your experience in Charlottesville? You were a medic. Yeah, so, so before um, Charlottesville or A12, so August 12, 2017... Um, I was trained to be a street medic. So essentially providing medical care to, you know, demonstrators, mm -hmm. counter demonstrators who maybe belong to a marginalized group and don't feel comfortable going to the hospital. Hospitals notoriously are not friendly to um, trans and non-binary folks. Maybe there's people with like an immigration status that prevents them from going to the hospital or they don't feel safe there or they just generally don't want to be in a place where they'll have to interact with police. So I trained as a street medic. Actually, my first street medic action was two years ago today, so July 8th, 2017, at a KKK rally in Charlottesville. People kind of forget about that one because it was a bit smaller, but there were like a lot of bad things that happened during that rally. You know, maybe about, I would say like 20 Klansmen showed up and they arrested, I don't know how many counter demonstrators were trying to block them from doing their rally. Kind of similar to what you see in a rally where a group of fascists, um, um, collude with the police and the police provide them an escort and uh, sort of ignoring the will of a group of like over a thousand people, you know, will escort 20 people to do their rally and escort them out and arrest maybe like 50 people who were counter demonstrating. So that was the first time I did it. And then and I came back in August for the Unite the Right rally, which is very interesting because that was the first and probably the last time that we'll see fascists be overtly fascistic in that way they weren't shy about being fascist there right a lot of swastikas a lot of like hitler salutes a lot of like chanting like blood and soil which is an old like nazi chant it was interesting to see because nowadays you don't see that so much anymore where they're overtly embracing fascism like that but yeah anyway like a lot of people getting in confrontations mm -hmm. and uh you know, me and my buddies providing medical care to people who are getting injured. Sort of, there was no pre-coordination with any other, like any anti-fascists that were there. We didn't coordinate with them, but because of the way that the, the structure is very flexible, random, like black block masked up people would just randomly screen for us, like as we were moving, just like show up and like provide a human shield while we like helped somebody get up. And I remember especially after we were attacked by when James Alex Fields like rammed his car into everybody and we were just sort of like on the side trying to provide medical care. This is when we lost Heather Heyer, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember it because I wasn't exactly there at the time. We were like back a ways from where the marchers were going. We heard a loud crash and then people were confused because people thought it was a bomb at first. So we slowly started walking towards it and then sort of saw what happened like with all the people that were just like lying on the ground and then breaking off into groups sort of like each person trying to help out a different person making sure they were okay 
and then with you know black bloc people essentially overseeing us providing security because once the quote-unquote like the forces of law and order showed up to quote-unquote help us you know they didn't send a fire department unit with an ambulance first they sent like an armored police cruiser in first with a machine gunner on the top which helped literally nothing it's like okay cool thanks for showing up guy and they just stood around and looked tough and waited for the actual ambulance to show up which you know this is the only time that I've seen like an EMS apparatus, like an emergency medical services unit show up. And like they weren't antagonistic towards us because there were just so many people that were hurt. And the fire chief like walked up to me and he said, okay, what do we do? Sort of we coordinated to, you know, transport whoever wanted to go to the hospital to go and help whoever didn't want to go um, get to a safer place to get patched up. I don't know. But yeah, that's sort of my experience that happened there. Even though I had been at actions where there were masked up people before, that was like the first time that, you know, I was moving and doing something and that, you know, masked up people were providing security for me as we were doing stuff. Um, There were also, I wasn't there, but other medics talking about how once once the governor declared a state of emergency and the fascists had to disperse, there were just sort of like roaming groups of like 10 to 15 fash looking to beat people up. And they did find people and they did beat people up like DeAndre Harris. Yeah, he was jumped inside the parking garage. But there were other incidents where they tried to like intimidate um, churches where people were hanging out and other things like that. And the only thing that stopped them were um, Black Bloc Antifa providing security as well as some like armed leftists who came in with guns to scare them away. Cornell West is one of the major public figures who went on mainstream media and said yes it was the black bloc it was antifa that protected me yeah yeah definitely and i i like as as you can see when when we were doing like the saturday rally all out dc there was at one point um fascists in the other rally were trying to box in and prevent the dj for our event from arriving and so then all the people that were masked up had to move. So let's talk about common Antifa tactics. The most common identifier that Antifa is present is obviously the black block, all the all black clothing, they're masked up. Let's talk about why they do that. What's the purpose of it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Part of it is, you know, protecting your identity, obviously, because you're doing anti-fascism, but, you know, under the eyes of the law, what you're doing may not be legal. Or, you know, even if you're doing something completely legal and, you know, peaceful, maybe your employer or place of work or your family will not approve of you doing that. Part of it sort of functions like a group camouflaged, sort of like how, like zebra print camouflage, like what zebras do. Zebra stripes don't blend in with the savanna in Africa, but what it does is it blends in with other zebras. When they move as a mass, it's hard to tell where one zebra starts and then the next one ends. Black block sort of achieves the same thing where it's like a sea of black. It's intimidating. And also you can't get an accurate read on how many people there are, which, you know, can serve your purposes. It can either make you look like bigger than you really are, which is really useful. They also, uh, some of the other tactics, one that I really like is the dance parties. Oh yeah. Yeah. This celebration of joy that we did. Yeah. Just showing that, you know, like they're not going to bring us down. You know, we're actually celebrating who we are, especially like the black folks, because DC is like a black city. It's a historically black city that's being rapidly gentrified, you know, and people celebrating their existence in the face of such oppression is a form of anti-fascism, right? And then outside of like direct actions, there's like a whole spectrum of anti-fascist action that happens. 
you know, part of it, you know, is community organizing. If we're specifically talking about outside of regular community organizing, if we're talking about specifically standing up to fascist violence, something can be like letting people know, hey, somebody's coming. I know that, for example, like Pershing Park, um, where we were at, and the park across the street, Freedom Plaza. Sometimes, like on a normal day, homeless folks will hang out. So people were reaching out to them saying like, hey, don't be here on Saturday. This isn't going to be a safe place to be. So that's one. Other like methods are like sort of infiltration of these groups. There was a pretty good article. I think it's behind a paywall, but you can find another one. It's called like My Year Inside the Alt-Right. It was from a, a man in the UK who infiltrated the, uh, I think the English Defense League and sort of just reported on their organizing tactics and what goes on behind the scenes versus what they're saying in real life which is a form of anti-fascist action. Another thing is like if fascists are having like a function near where you're at and like say they reserve like a hotel and they're going to be going to that hotel. Another thing would be spamming the hotline for that hotel and telling them, hey, there's like a group of people who are meeting there. They may not have been honest with you about who they are, but this is who they really are. And do you really want that kind of person at your hotel? I saw that this Saturday they were all staying at Trump International. Oh yeah, with that, I mean, you're never going to get the Trump International to turn them away, but... Things like that sort of, for, for example, after the rally on Saturday, they were planning on having like a VIP event, right? Where they were going to charge like $200 a head to like have a fancy party. And it's supposed to be in Southwest DC above like a, like this fancy, one of those like gyms that looks like a nightclub, similar to Equinox. So they were going to hold their event there. But then when anti-fascists started calling the venue and saying like, are you going to let these people here? The venue was like, we're not going to let them in here. And then they said later on that they were going to do it at the Spy Museum, which is also in Southwest DC. And then people were calling and then the Spy Museum official Twitter account essentially said, no, they're not having their party here. So you're denying them their space for their fancy party. And then another thing, there's also like some smaller things you can do like around town, like they'll put up recruiting posters here and there trying to get people to come to their meetings. You know, just tear them down. Um, also, like when you do tear them down, there's also this thing, just try to use your keys or a knife because... They do like hide like razor blades behind them if you try to tear it down. Be careful when you're doing that. Don't don't do it with your bare hands essentially. Antifa really came into the public eye probably in that famous punching video on Trump's inauguration day. It's when Richard Spencer got punched on camera. It made the conversation go national, mm -hmm. which was is it okay to punch Nazis? I mean, you know, my answer is just going to be yes. I mean, the 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 whole idea behind doing that, like punching Richard Spencer, um, in public, it, it wasn't so much to like really, part of it was to hurt him, right? Watching that video for them is humiliating. So that's kind of like why the milkshake thing is so effective, right? Because, you know, it's not like confrontational in the traditional sense where you're like squaring up and fighting somebody, but it's humiliating and it makes you look uncool. That's part of the- Because then it breaks their spirit. People don't want to join up with them anymore. People who join up with them, it's about wanting to be on what's perceived as the winning team. If you make them look like the losing team, you know, the goal is to keep increasing mm -hmm. the social cost of siding with them, of being fascist. Yeah, exactly. So obviously street violence is the last resort. I think that we can agree that some people disagree on their definition of violence. For example, they would probably consider like the milkshake throwing in the silly string to be violence. Then, you know, compared to like the, yeah. the overt violence of Richard Spencer getting punched. I'm sure it felt really great to punch Richard Spencer, even if he didn't go down. Sort of like the idea that you can be a pacifist kind of comes from a place of privilege, right? Where you can say that, you know, me being nonviolent is okay. 
and I will never raise my hand to like fight somebody, right? It's usually because like you will not be the one to die. Like with, with anti-fascism, when you're fighting fascists, if you yourself are a fascist and you want to be left alone, right? The whole thing is like they're not going to target you if you're like a closet fascist or a closet racist. Like it doesn't really matter to them. Like the thing is they're mad about the organizing impact you're having on marginalized communities, right? So if you stop going to rallies, you stop doing fascist organizing, you'll get left you'll be left alone. The way that fascists look at uh, marginalized people or their targets, for them it's either it's either the from the fascist point of view either they will lose or you will die, right? The only way to make a fascist happy as like a person of color, queer person is to die. It's your existence in itself is the crime that they don't want to exist. Right, I think that people should start to understand that what Antifa fights for and they risk imprisonment and they risk serious consequences for the same principles that most people actually believe in, which is human rights. Right, exactly. Even if Antifa is far from perfect, its goals are ultimately good. Yeah, and and, and, and that is to say like, um, obviously, I'm not saying that every single act of violence that's carried out by like a, a supposed anti-fascist is good. Um, like their mistakes mm -hmm. are made. The point is like you need to learn from it, from your mistakes about, you know, what's effective, what's not effective. And people do do that. Conversations like that happen afterwards, like debriefings happen where they talk about, you know, was this effective? Was this not effective? People on the left who like don't believe in anti-fascism as like an organizing principle, they always go like, oh, well, uh, they made us look bad this one time, so we should never do it again. Or they just go all moralistic and they're just like, oh my god, violence is never the answer. But they don't really know what they're yeah, saying yeah, the because sort of like it's like the real violence, like we said earlier in this podcast, the real violence is the systemic violence. Yeah, exactly. I'm with Antifa on this one. Rational debate doesn't always work. It hasn't worked historically. And especially like these like feel good kumbaya rallies are mm -hmm. nice sometimes, but what are they really doing? I think a good example is um there's this book, it's called uh, IBM and the Holocaust. And it's about like, you know, the collusion between the company IBM and the Hitler regime. It's a very long book. It's very dry. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest reading it. One of the chapters in the book, it's called uh, France and Holland. And the author does a comparative study of the effects of the Holocaust, how it happened in France and Holland, because they were invaded at around the same time. The interesting thing is that in Holland, about 73% of the of Holland's Jewish population had died by the end of the Holocaust, right? In France, uh, about 25% of their Jewish population had died. Correction, they were killed by the Nazis. Now, one of the difference, differences between the two is that in Holland, they did have sort of those feel-good, like, we stand with our Jewish brothers and sisters rallies. Um, a lot of the Christian, like so-called progressive pastors had sermons about, you know, standing with your mm -hmm. Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, there was even some violent uprisings, like there were some small riots here and there. But in the end, when it came time to deport Jews to the concentration camps, they complied with it. There wasn't like an act of resistance against it. They complied with the rules. And also like it didn't help that Holland had already taken like really thorough census records about Jewish people. Like their census included a question about what your religion was, which made it very easy to track people. In France, what you had was, first of all, they didn't keep track of that. That wasn't part of their census, right? Um, and there were some other factors too, like France had a very outdated um, like system for uh, keeping records, right? But one of the major things was that the person in France who was in charge of overseeing, you know, relocation of Jews to concentration camps, he was actually a, 
he was a double agent and a member of the French resistance. So he just refused to turn in their information when the Nazis asked for it, right? So this act of like mundane resistance where he just kind of like flubbed paperwork a bunch of times ended up saving like countless lives. His last name was Carmille. And, uh, you know, sadly he was caught and captured and he died in a concentration camp. But it shows how effective active resistance and sabotage is versus like feel good rallies like we stand in solidarity with you and how ineffective that is if it isn't followed up by real resistance so most of what antifa does is you know they do organize these feel good rallies they also do a lot of the direct confrontation and the direct actions but majority of what they do is online research journalism Uh, they do infiltration of these far-right groups they push the cultural environment to shame this kind of far-right mentality they pressure venues to cancel any of their events then there's just the constant organizing the educational events and trainings the fundraisers writing pamphlets, making videos, pretty much what every other social or racial justice movement does. And that's like the the non-glamorous part. That's the part that's never talked about. Yeah, definitely. And especially part of that, like, like what you said, raising the social cost of being a fascist, like when you find someone that's like in Proud Boys or whatever, sort of like getting them, you know, to lose their job essentially and make it so that or it's not financially viable for people to continue this kind of organizing. The majority of Americans believe that confronting racists and fascists only makes them grow stronger. There is a glorification of fighting Nazis in World War II. It's our least controversial war. But what would these same Americans say if people fought against Hitler and his supporters before the outbreak of war? What about before he took power back in 33? There were communist and socialist organizations that actively resisted, but would these same Americans have supported them? Like my gut instinct is probably not. Yeah, exactly. There were some people who looked at people who enlisted in Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil war against uh franco and the fascists they, they sort of looked at them as like premature anti-fascists like like what are you doing you know like what's the point of this like why are you even fighting right the illusion for a lot of liberals is that they think that fascism starts at the end right they don't think it starts at the beginning like we said before hitler started with a group of like 45 dudes it didn't start with death camps with gas chambers and like ovens it didn't start with that at the beginning that was like towards the end of his campaign sort of yeah i question whether or not like a lot of liberals would have seen it in its early stages and say oh you know we can we can stop this now which all right to be fair that was like the first time we saw fascism version 1.0 happen with the benefit of hindsight and an analysis of history you can see it happening now and you can do something about it now but I think part of it is uh, like liberal complacency because they think, you know, this doesn't directly affect them. It's affecting, you know, people at the border, poor black communities all over the United States like are victims of this. But, you know, they're not part of that. The problem with most people is that they have an all or nothing mentality when it comes to this sort of thing. They only take it seriously when it becomes an all out totalitarian regime. You know, I think that when people think of fascism, they're just like, this isn't Nazi Germany. I question whether like liberals who would probably be in a protected class, like like upper middle class liberal white people would you know, if things got really bad, if they would even do anything or just kind of keep their heads down. They would down keep their heads down, I and, think. you know, sort of like... I want to add that Americans are completely contradictory when they claim to be against fascist regimes. Like, World War II is so glorified. And after fighting the Nazis in World War II, they all came home and they were completely okay with Jim Crow, which was fascism. And, you know, some of those very same, like, you know, World War II war heroes were the same people 
you know, like attacking black World War II veterans who came home in their uniforms. The I'm not a fascist, I fought fascists is the equivalent of I can't be a racist, I have black friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's talk about free speech. The classic liberal notions of free speech, they're not the ones that Antifa adheres to. Like one of the biggest criticisms against Antifa is that they are the intolerant left, that they're a bigger threat to free speech than fascism itself. But I don't know, I think if we're completely honest, I don't think that Americans really, I don't think that we really have free speech anyway. You, you can't, you can't advertise cigarettes on TV. You can't, you can't curse on like network TV or basic cable. We have all kinds of copy copyright infringement laws. I'm not saying that we should take them all away. I just think that we don't have completely free speech and for good reasons. Yeah, but apparently, you know, when you're organizing fascist violence against uh, communities of color, um, trans and non-binary folks, like that's right. okay. That's okay to do, like in the public sphere. The administration that they support, Trump's administration, he doesn't even give access to oppositional reporters. Yeah, exactly. Who has the right to free speech anyway, and who gets to decide? Like, I think this is where the problems in perception about Antifa come from. A few years ago, when Antifa shut down the Berkeley College Republicans from bringing in Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter, like this is where people started spreading misinformation like anti-fascists are the real fascists. And the idea of free speech is a big thing in this country. There's a pretty recent psychological study that found that explicit racial prejudice, it's the most reliable predictor of the free speech defense of racists. Like it's just racist defending racists. Like you said, like, oh, they're the real fascists because again, like it's a misunderstanding of what fascism is. They're leveraging the liberal appeal to free speech in order to enact violent systems that will see a lot of marginalized people dead. And the thing is, like, again, since because of Charlottesville, they're not going to come out and say, you know, I'm a Nazi or whatever. Stephen Miller doesn't do that. Stephen Miller's a Nazi. I don't care. Like, I don't care what anybody says. He, But he would never say that on TV, you know, because they're, they know that. Like, the thing is with fascists, like, a lot of these people, yes, there are members of Proud Boys who are, like, just big hulking dudes who like to fight. But a lot of the, they're not dumb, right? Of the people who are pulling the strings behind this, right? They have like advanced degrees from like really fancy schools. You know, Richard Spencer graduated from UVA. Like these people, they, they know what they're doing and they know how to win, which is why it's imperative that anti-fascists do what they do because it's, it's like the enemy is not easily defeated. Like we're not, we're not playing into like the fascist notion that the enemy is both weak and strong at the same time. We know they're strong. That's why we have to fight back. Do you remember after Charlottesville, have you read there was like that 4chan post about um, no. right-wing organizing? About It's called like fixing the alt-right. What, what happened was after Charlottesville, they realized that it was a setback for the right because it made them look really bad, right? Even though the president tried to, you know, make them seem not so bad where it's like, oh yeah, the alt-left uh, did bad things too. Like, I think it was a net loss for them in terms of publicity. Uh, you know, a lot of fascists like congregate on 4chan and other online forums and somebody posted on poll, like P-O-L, which is their, their board specifically for political stuff. Like an anonymous person posted something called Fixing the Alt-Right. And it was sort of like a prescription for how to fix the movement. Um, and this is back in 2017. Essentially what he says here, and I quote, don't get trapped in an echo chamber where you can no longer relate to normies, right? So that's part of making it sound palatable, right? And he continues, pretending that Charlottesville didn't massively push the average white person away is really stupid. We have a chance to actually make changes now that Trump has shifted the Overton window to the right, but we need to be smart and make the movement appealing to the average white person. So 
um, for folks at home, the Overton window is the kind of political discourse that is acceptable to talk about or in the mainstream. When, you know, Trump, when he, when he announced his campaign and he was talking about denigrating, you know, brown people as like rapists and like everything else that he said, that shifted the Overton window to the right because it was like, oh, it's OK to say that now. All right, fine. We can say that now on TV. But then and then the person goes on to talk about like four points. Right. And he says, disavow all Nazi slash KKK edgelord LARPers, right. you know, LARP being um, live action role players. There is no way to lose public support quicker than going around making Nazi salutes and holding tiki torches while chanting, Jews will not replace us. This instantly makes the average person hate you. Two, build a populist movement with realistic incremental overt goals. Repealing the 1965 Immigration Act and replacing it with something that both limits total immigration and prioritizes white immigration is an actual tangible political goal. Three, keep the long-term goals covert. Don't ever reveal your power level. You know, for for the nerds out there, that's from Dragon Ball Z. But on white nationalist forums like Stormfront and 4chan, they use revealing your power level as code for not letting people know you're a fascist in public, right? Unless the other person is also a fascist and they know. And then he keeps going. He says, talking openly about a white ethno state only leads to failure and the average per the average public turning against you. So disavow anyone who reveals their power level. Leftists will recognize dog whistles and know we're crypto, but normies won't listen to them. Four, start first by focusing on multiculturalism because it is a lot easier for people to see how non-white countries produce culture that is at odds with our values. People like Peter Thiel, who's the former CEO of uh, PayPal, people like Peter Thiel should be the voice of the alt-right, not cringe lords like Richard Just the Spencer. language they use sounds like a bunch of 12-year-olds. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, there, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of thought put into there too, right? Where they know that the the overt symbols are, you know, scare people away. But, you know, if you do these things like behind the scenes, you can, you can sort of like have your creeping fascism come into They're vogue, trying you know, to stay as neutral sounding as possible. Free speech over here, it's the idea of all political opinions are supposed to be equal. Well, like like you saw, like at the Defend Free Speech rally, right? There, a lot of their symbols are draping themselves in the American flag because you know, if leftists were opposed to the American flag, they're unpatriotic. Which, yeah, <laughs> we are, but uh, also like it, it it serves their purposes to you know drape their things in the flag. I remember like after Charlottesville that same year, two thousand seventeen. I think it was in the winter like uh december there was this lady who was uh who was killed in san francisco kate steinley like there was there was a verdict that came down they were accusing an undocumented person of killing her and he was found innocent and uh richard spencer tried to put together a rally right in uh in front of the white house i mean he brought like 20 people and we showed up with like 200 people to stop him and he didn't actually do his rally but when he showed up, they had like all these like, you know, they, they essentially tried to clean up their act. They were like, you know, no Nazi flags, nothing like that. Just a bunch of American flags and a big sign says build Kate's wall, trying to like leverage like the, you know, people's sympathy mm -hmm. for this dead white woman and talking about how like, yeah, we're building the wall for her. So from what I understand, modern anti-fascists draw from the European traditions. It's more of a collectivism mindset than it is concerned with individual civil liberties and i think that's why americans have a really hard time understanding anti-fascism collectivism it's part of the political philosophies for socialism and communism 
but those are seen as very anti-American. Very individualist culture that we live in here. Right. And um, that's what's at odds. That that too, like this collective like community self-defense, which requires you to, you know, sort of be a member of your community and care about it. This happens a lot. I think I think people are trying to rectify this problem before where we would have like gentrifying so-called like anarchist or communists moving into black neighborhoods and like they'll say the black lives matter stuff and whatever but they didn't get it take time to know their neighbors or like go to cookouts or bring them food or share you know and i think like a lot of activists are like it's not perfect but they're doing better they're being more intentional about it where i mean that's an act of community self-defense in itself is getting to know your neighbor so that when you have issues you don't have to call the police on each other you can just be like hey Susan, you know, my next door neighbor, can you turn the music down real quick? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, sure, because you know each other, you know, or help each other out whenever things are going rough. You know, you do these little things together. And then when, you know, actual fascists come, it's very easy to get everyone together and be like, hey, we're going to show up, right? And I think that's like a lot of the hard work of community organizing is doing that kind of thing. Because when people talk about community self-defense, I think sometimes, um, you know, the left is not immune from like machismo and toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. And they fixate on just guns, right? Like arming themselves, going to the range and like, you know, wearing the body armor and looking cool. But like, that's not really the hard part of organizing community self-defense, right? It's looking after the community. Uh, the good example I think of is with like the the Viet Cong in Vietnam, right? So yeah, they, they were poor farmers with guns and that's how they fought the united states but the the communist party there organized people by addressing their material needs and that's what built the resistance um and the guns were just sort of tools that they used to resist the americans like that's really where the focus needs to be i think in terms of like anti-fascist organizing because it makes everything else so much easier when the community is like invested in collective self-defense right and you see this good example is uh so we're talking about the European tradition. One of the best examples that you can see was like the Battle of Cable Street in 1936 in London. And uh, the reason why I talk about this is because all the sources are in English and it's very well documented. Essentially, Sir Oswald Mosley, who was a you know, British nobleman and I guess the UK's version of Hitler, right, who wanted to organize fascism in the UK in the 1930s. He founded like a group called the British Union of Fascists. And, you know, it was what it sounded like. They walked around in their black shirts and did parades and whatever. And they organized to do a march through the east end of London, which was, had a very large Jewish population. And they were going to do a march one day in 1936. They organized maybe like 3,000 people. But because of how the east end of London was organized, the way that the Communist Party was embedded with the people, there were like anarchists there, Jewish folks, even members of just like the Labour Party and uh, Irish dock workers, when they attempted to hold their march through the town, you know, they had 3,000 people, that's a lot. Um, 20,000 people showed up in the street to block them from walking through uh, the east end of London. The police attempted to break them up to let the march happen because, you know, obviously the fascists were collaborating with the police. But the people just straight up were street fighting, like, with the cops, not even the fascists because the fascists couldn't even get there so they were like the cops tried to clear the way with like horses weapons at some point there were cops that actually surrendered to the people because they couldn't fight back anymore like they were too badly beaten like they were fighting in the street there were like housewives who stayed inside but what they did was they threw stuff from their second story windows at the cops like they were throwing bricks and like pots and pans 
emptying out like things of like hot water on them or like emptying out chamber pots full of urine on the police and it just thoroughly broke their spirit to where like you know a lot of people ended up being arrested by the end of the day the fascists didn't have a chance to do anything they didn't do their rally they packed up and went home there was sort of this community idea where like everyone in the east end of london said we're gonna turn out for each other because they can't stop twenty thousand people making improvised barricades out of like shopping carts and stuff the popular alternative to anti-fascism especially among liberals is to just ignore fascists and have faith in the government and on rational discourse and even have faith in the police to prevent them from going any further but if they had any knowledge of history they would know that this Mm -hmm. doesn't work like if you don't stop them when they're small Do you wait until they're medium-sized? Do you wait until they're huge? Do you wait until they're already president? Like, when is a good time to stop them is my question for for these types. In my last podcast, we talked a lot about Stephen Miller and how he flew under the radar for so long, even though his ideology was made so clear all the way back in high school. So for those who missed the last episode, this is a guy who grew up in Santa Monica, and in high school, he wrote op-eds about his liberal classmates. When he was in college, he was mentored by none other than Richard Spencer, and together they tried to take out newspaper ads calling for the ethnic cleansing of non-whites in the U.S. So we all know what that means. You know, he flew under the radar for a long time, and then he reappeared during Trump's campaign season, and he would get the crowds warmed up by doing the Heil Trump Nazi salute at rallies. And now he's the White House senior advisor that decides immigration policies for the country. Like, that's what you get when you ignore them and you wait for the government to do something about them. This is what happens when you just wait for electoral action. They pretty much just become the government. Yes, it's one of those things where, you know, once they're in power, it's kind of hard to remove them because I don't think we're at a point in history where there would be like an overt struggle to like remove them from their seat of power. Like I said, the the best thing I think you can do is increase the social cost of them being who they are. Like for example, um I was still a member of the local like DSA chapter um when a bunch of the dsa members organized to um crash like Mm. kirsten nielsen when she was having her dinner at a like a local mexican restaurant here in dc which was awful because it was like right around the time when um the child separation policy was being put in place and then she's like oh let me eat at a mexican restaurant um and then people crashed her dinner and people were like oh that's awful why would you do that you know she's just doing her job you know, let her do her job. Don't bother her when she's outside of work. It's like, no, they're they're enacting violent policies during their day to day and the kinds of violence that they're visiting on these people like like people at the border don't get to just turn off from being incarcerated at the border. They don't get a day off. So neither do neither should these people like they should be inconvenienced and their lives made like hell as often as they can. Going back to your point about, you know, people glorify fighting Nazis in movies and stuff. It's funny to me that people got mad about ruining (laughs) fascist dinners like with her and like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. But then like the same scene happens in Casablanca. Like it's the exact scene when Victor Laszlo, essentially like the Germans are having their dinner and they're singing like German Nazi songs. And he has like the whole restaurant who are like a lot of them are like for are like French refugees, like join in singing the French national anthem to drown them out so that they can't sing. And I'm like, this is exactly what happens. And you love this movie. Like liberals love Casablanca, uh, like, but you know, all of a sudden, like in, interrupting someone's dinner is going a bridge too far because they don't want to do it in real life. They just want to fantasize about doing it, I guess. 
So for a lot of people, anti-fascism and anti-capitalism, those two go hand in hand too. A part of the reason for the rise of the far right everywhere, I guess, is that if we zoom out far enough, capitalism doesn't work. All the benefits of capitalism that we were promised, they haven't come true for most people, and even for those on the far right that promote capitalism. They're just seeking some sort of alternative and looking for a scapegoat. I think that people who are anti-fascist understand that capitalism itself is the problem. A lot of the people who get recruited to be, you know, fascist street soldiers and proud boys, you know, uh, a good chunk of them are probably like, you know, early, like 22 to 30 year old downwardly mobile white men, right, who are seeing like, you know, they they're they did all the right things that they were supposed to do in life and now they're not getting those jobs they're supposed to do it's like oh whose fault is it and instead of blaming capital capitalism and uh, neoliberalism it's like oh it's the immigrants fault for like why my life is so shitty you know it's all of these like black and brown queer folks that it's their fault why my life is falling apart they're ripe for the picking like i was talking about before like that movie fight club i keep talking about movies today but it's like that movie fight club where it's just these disaffected men where like in that movie like they did violent things but it was like a weird like nihilism that they believed in in real life they're being motivated to commit fascist violence instead um I want to reiterate this, even though I said it before, you know, fascism does not begin at the end, right? It's creeping into our society and our lives right now. And like, now is the time to do something. And even if like, you know, you don't have to be someone who's like masked up and like fighting on the street in order to do anti-fascism, right? You can donate to a bail fund, maybe, you know, get to know people in your community if you live among marginalized people, maybe get involved in the research side if that's something that you'd like to do. Generally, like if there's an anti-fascist collective near you or people doing anti-fascist work, they're not unfriendly. Like they're not scary people that are going to hurt you if you try to talk to them. They're going to vet you, right? And they're going to feel you out to make sure you're not a cop. They will be inviting to you if you're sincere about what you're doing because there's a lot of work that needs to be done and like they won't turn down like sincere help. You know, if this is something that you want to get involved in, you can try it, but I think the time for being quiet on the sidelines and keeping our heads down is, it's its decades past, but it's not too late to start. I agree with you there. Antifa exists because of rising fascism. It's right there in the name. Every single major movement started out small. Earlier, Kuya Andre said that the German Workers' Party only had 54 members when Hitler joined up. Before they managed to find popular support, they were basically just ragtag groups of bitter men. And people don't realize it, but the majority of people who lived in Nazi Germany, they weren't scared of being arrested. It's pretty much just like what's going on right now. Most people are not in fear of being picked up by ICE or of being arrested. They're not, we're not in fear for our lives. To take it back, like in Nazi Germany, most people were just living happy, normal lives. They never suspected that anything terrible was happening until it was way too late. I think it's also important to say that anti-fascists aren't just fighting against fascism. They fight against all kinds of oppression, homophobia, patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. Now, the big irony about Antifa is that the more successful they are, the more their purpose and their legitimacy are in question. Like, the better they are at stomping out fascism before it gets violent, the more we'll never know if it was ever going to get violent. If you take Charlottesville, for example, after that, the alt-right took a big hit, but 
What if Antifa hadn't counter-protested and exposed so many of their identities? Would it have gotten much bigger? Would, have gotten, would it have gotten more violent? I mean, there's other examples I could use, but I think that you understand what I'm saying here. I actually think it's better that we'll never know. I don't think that we should wait to find out what they're capable of. Wholeheartedly agree with everything you said. And that wraps up another episode of the Aesthetic Distance Podcast. Thank you to my friend and guest, Kuya Andre, for coming on the show to talk about Antifa. Hopefully we can clear up some of the misinformation that is all over the place and explain exactly what Antifa really stands for and aims to do. Uh, yeah, real quick. So one of the organizations that was at the All Out DC rally and like, I know like their organizers and they do great work is um, BYP 100, which is the Black Youth Project 100. It's uh, an organization for uh, young black folks, specifically black queer folks between the ages of 18 and 35. Who are doing like really good community organizing work around issues with either um police violence fascist violence you know rights for marginalized folks sex workers living in communities where they have no one else to speak for them and they need people to educate on their behalf so if folks can donate to byp 100 that would be great just search for them on google it's spelled the way it sounds byp the number 100 and uh go to their website and like Show them a little love, give them a little bit of money because every little bit helps. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Aesthetic Distance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to podcasts.